0: So we all own space together. Mm. We all own space together. You don't own it, I don't own it. I can't claim it to be mine. Right. No country can p- put its flag and claim it for, for their, their country. Mm. So, for example, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put the American flag, they weren't claiming the moon. They were just beating their chest yeah. and saying, <laughs> we beat you, Soviet Union.
1: The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight, straight jacket.
0: Because by looking at the stars, we are literally looking back through time. And as the world gets smaller and more connected, the narrative of freedom is rubbing off on people of different cultures and religions, however remote.
1: You can't get anywhere if you just copy what somebody told you. You have to be challenging things all the time, challenging everything, you know, uh, and thinking new thoughts and so on.
2: Welcome to Blabcoats. My name is Amit Siddiqui alongside Alex Ray, who's having a drink instead of paying attention it's to the hot intro. In Western Sydney <laughs> today,
1: uh, let me assure you. It's no. very hot. Wow.
2: So today on the podcast, we have Professor Stephen Freeland. Now, as Alex was saying before the podcast, there's a lot to go through in his intro, so we'll just keep it nice and succinct. Um, so he's actually the Dean of School of Law and uh, uh, and focuses on international criminal law, commercial law, public international law, and human rights law. Now, he's represented Australia at um, Australian government at many United Nations conferences and, and committees. But today, in particular, we wanted to have him on to talk about space law as well as his journeys. So, uh, thank you for being on the podcast oh, my and pleasure. welcome.
0: Thank you for asking me. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, le- we always want to start the podcast. Um, focusing uh, on the journey and, and to get an understanding of who our guest is and, and where you started and why you came down
0: this path. Okay, this path to where I am now, you mean? Yeah, yes. we'll like, get somebody
1: know. interested in law. We've oh, had lots of scientists oh, oh. on, but we haven't had any lawyers or anyone from the School of Law. So but law,
0: yeah, law is intrinsically interesting, parts of it are, at least. So, oh, journey. Um, when I finished my uh, high school certificate uh, a long time ago, a thousand years ago, I uh, uh, did very well and had the marks to, that would have got me either into medicine or law, which are the two highest uh, and uh, uh, as a good Jewish boy living in the eastern suburbs, that's all you did, <laughs> either <laughs> medicine or law. And for me, it was quite clear that I would not do medicine because I faint at the sight of blood, no, so to speak. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't and that. getting a blood test is is horrible. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a bit flippant there. But, so I did law, but you know, not really thinking about it, but but um, with a social conscience. Mm-hmm. and And law, but not only, but law certainly... Uh, is uh, a discipline, a way of thinking Mm -hmm. that also attunes you to social justice and for me uh, I feel very strongly about that. I've felt very strongly about it my entire career in different ways uh, and I've had the opportunity to practice it as well. Mm. So uh, I finished my HSC, um, did law, did well in law, got a job offer with what was then the largest law firm in the world mm. and uh said I'll just take a year off to try something else because I'd done a lot of acting. So I went and thought I'm gonna to try to be a professional actor. And uh I went to London uh managed uh by luck really to um do quite a lot of acting at the West End. Uh, and uh did that for a year. Then when the law firm said, Are you coming back? I said, Look, I'd like another year and they said, <laughs> Okay, we'll give you one more year Uh and then I the second for the second half of that year I went and lived on a fell in love and went and lived in a Greek on a Greek island with a girl and life was pretty good. Wow. Um, but then I had to decide because I acting was quite a passion for me, uh had to decide what I would do? Would I come back to this amazing law firm which would send me all around the world, or would I pursue an acting career because there were other opportunities for me in London, which you know for an actor is a is a bit of a mecca hmm. and and literally did have the, that sliding door moment where you think you know one path, the other path, not that you ever regret. Um, But in the end, I chose to go back to the law... to start with the law firm. And the main reason I did that is for the year that I was in in the West End in London, it was uh, 1980, and the British economy was pretty poor. And in that year, four uh, West End theatres closed uh, because the economy was quite Mm -hmm. poor. And I just thought, I mean, this is the practical part, perhaps. Well, you know, it's very exciting being an impoverished actor, but if you can't even get a job, (laughs) you know, and times are tough. So anyway, one never regrets, one never regrets. Uh, So I became then a commercial lawyer um, with this law firm Was very fortunate to be able to travel quite a lot and be posted in various places around the world. Uh, Realized at about the age of 28, 29, that uh, as much as I enjoyed what I was doing, which was a lot of you know, quite significant uh, legal transactions, that there was more to my personality perhaps than, than that. Um, I had been approached and then finally joined um, a large multilateral um, uh, multinational uh, investment bank, became an investment banker f- then for the next um, 15 or 16 years. Uh, which was also wonderful and allowed me to live, again, in many places of the world uh, for quite lengthy periods of time. In fact, most of my professional career for the first 20, 22 years was all overseas. I think mm, wow. out of that I spent two years in Australia. Uh, then, uh, for personal reasons, I made a, a deal with my then partner that I would retire at the grand old age of 40, <laughs> um, indeed, Sounds I actually, great. <laughs> Yeah, because I never saw my family, mm. and, uh, and in fact did retire at 41 or 41 and a half. Uh, and this is in the late 1990s, I was born in 1957, and uh, then thought what the hell do I do now, so I actually then went back to university. Uh, half in Australia, half in the Netherlands, and did a Master of International Law. Mm. Then I came back to Australia, which was quite new for me, uh, but again, for family reasons, and thought, what the hell do I do now? Mm. And so I became an academic and joined Western Sydney University. And, uh, but I was, you know, quite a bit older, with a bit more experience in one sense, and probably with an ego that was too big at that time, and thought, well, I don't want to, you know, I'm not 23, I'm 43 or mm. 44, and, and I wanted to teach things that um, perhaps were different. And when I had done my master's, half of the time was in Utrecht in the Netherlands, and someone had taught a subject called space law there, which I did as part of my master's. Oh. It was quite an elderly gentleman, sadly I don't think he's alive anymore, who wasn't very good at teaching it, but, you know, who had thought about space law at this time. And so I when I started teaching, I said, OK, I'll teach, and I'll, but I want to set up this unit called Space Law, which I did do. And that was in 2002, 2003. Uh, and then I've been an academic since that time at Western Sydney, uh, became a professor in 2010, I think, and have been dean for the last couple of years of the law school. So if that's a journey, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've had three or four different careers. I still believe that there's another career or two out wow. there for me. But I'm really fortunate because the things that are my interest, international law, so international criminal law, as you mentioned, I had the great privilege of working with judges of the International Criminal Court for 12 years. Uh, international law, generally, I do a lot of work in, the, in various aspects, and of course, space law, mm. which um, has really become incredibly important, dare I say, sexy. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: It got you us going. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Well, uh,
0: over the past, uh, well, certainly f- f- uh, over a long period of time. Um, and it's only really over the past five or ten years that people, you know, not people who know about these things, but generally people mm. are beginning to understand that space for us is ubiquitous. Mm. We utilize space. 20, 30 times a day and it's not just the GPS and our phone, although of course that's important, but in so many other ways space is important and indeed for every country, be they developed or less developed, a day without space would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. And because space is so political and so strategic and now so commercial and sadly so militarized and so uh, imbued in the future of humanity, clearly you need rules, mm. rules to, to of st- and standards, and so I've been involved very much in spreading the word about those rules, because a lot of law does exist mm. at the international level, mm. and then I've had the privilege of working with various governments, the Australian government, the New Zealand government, and a number of other governments around the world, in drafting their national space laws, mm. um, and it's just an area where... I, uh, so many things are relevant, so it's law, of course, it's policy, it's politics, it's environment, it's engineering, it's science, it's medicine, mm-hmm. it's economics, it's humanity, all imbued in the, in the way we utilize space. And so the legal aspects are fascinating, but the fascinating, even more fascinating thing for me is seeing how that works in the real world mm. and and because of my background particularly as a investment banker i am a bit of a real world sort of guy mm. um and it's just a fascinating area
2: mm. yeah it, it definitely does sound fascinating i, I, I have
0: to say you've lived uh, quite a life no, <laughs> <I mean. laughs> well are the, other, the only jealous. other thing <laughs> <laughs> and the only other thing i said i was born in 1957 so i'm a natural to be it talk about space why well, I'm going to ask you. Yeah. You know what happened in 1957 that is relevant for space. The Cold you know? War? The Cold War was on. Yeah. Do you, anything? Anyone in the audience it, here? Any it, of your listeners know? <laughs> 1957, October the 4th.
1: Was it the first person in space? Close, not quite. First person in space was later.
0: It was the first, close. It was the first human-made object in space called Sputnik. Ah, And so we're, as you said, quite rightly, Alex, we're in the midst of the Cold War, right? Hmm. Major tensions. Hmm. Uh, The United States and the Soviet Union at loggerheads in so many ways, both realized that rocket technology, which essentially uh, was developed in a sense by the the German war machine during the Second World War with their Mm. V1 and V2 rockets. But this would be another way that those two countries, the protagonists in the Cold War, could develop their strengths. Mm. So I'm a Sputnik baby. So (laughs) when Sputnik went up in 1957, uh, it's a really interesting uh, thing because we're in the midst of the Cold War, Uh, Also, you know, we're only four or five years before the almost unthinkable happens with the Bay of Pigs in Mm -hmm. the early 60s. You know, we almost got so close to the unthinkable. And so when Sputnik went up, the Soviet Union won that race and began a new race. And if you look at um, the New York Times on October the 5th, 1957, so the day after Sputnik, you'll see an article front page, of course, you know, Sputnik, Soviets launched Sputnik or whatever it is. First paragraph or two is uh, amazing, you know, amazing scientific achievement that humans have actually managed to do this to put something into Earth orbit. Mm. Uh, And the rest of the the article is, oh my goodness, if they can do this, what else can they do? You know, and this is based on rocket technology, this can launch weapons, and so it doubled and tripled and quadrupled the efforts of the Americans in developing their own technology. Mm. And so you had this incredible period of uh, concentration by the two protagonists on space technology Mm. in a whole range of ways with military eyes so all of the technologies that we all use every day GPS and remote sensing and communication satellites all were developed initially the technology with military eyes but of course they also now have commercial uses as well Right. so it's a it, geopolitics
1: played an incredible part in space mm. and still does because it's such a strategic area mm. Mm. it's interesting you're starting there with the political um the political side of it because right now um when i think about space i'm thinking about like elon musk and things like this which is really a commercial side of it sure so is there is is there any kind of hard distinction between, I guess, the governmental kind of side of space law and a commercial side? Or is it kind of one or one set of laws that covers everything? Yeah, or? the
0: law, the law, the international law covers the countries. Mm. That's the nature of international law, by and large, right? So the we have a number of what we call treaties that were developed through the UN processes that bind countries, right? They don't bind corporations, mm. and so Space initially was envisaged, particularly by the Soviet Union, but not only, uh, as being the realm of countries only. So any space activity would be done by the right. country. Mm. Over time, as I said, these technologies, you know, uh, people began to realise that commercial businesses could be born out of these technologies, as well as all of the other strategic stuff. So space over time became increasingly commercialized. That's not to say that countries are still not doing it, mm. but it's become increasingly commercialized. And uh, therefore, countries like Australia, like the United States, like mm. a- any country really, um, has to and wants to because of the, the strategic value, because of the economics, because let's face it, the dangers of, to safety and whatever, they want to be able to control, not necessarily in a negative way, but control those within their own jurisdiction who want to engage in space. Mm. And so increasingly you have these international rules binding the countries, but to then bind the Elon Musk's of the world, Mm. the United States has to pass national space law. So incorporating to a certain degree those things that exist at the international level, Mm. international law. So many countries now, as well as being parties and bound to the international system have national space law, which is directed towards uh, corporates or individuals who want to engage in space. Mm. And so the country then can regulate, just like any other behaviour, can yeah. regulate that behaviour. So you've got, in a sense, two Biological levels. kind of. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they both work and they both operate. Yeah. So space is now highly commercialised. The mm. world space economy last year was something like about 300 and oh, in Australian dollars, probably 450 million, uh, excuse me, 450 billion Australian dollars mm. worldwide, and is growing at 10% per year. Wow. Now, the world economy, which is obviously much, 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 much bigger, is growing at 2 to 3% a year. Yeah, yeah. So, this space economy is growing at three or four times the rest of the world economy, yeah, yeah. and there are so many opportunities, so many challenges for law, for regulation, because as Alex and and Hamid uh, you said at the beginning, the technology is racing ahead. Yeah. Mm. And like anything, law cannot and should not ever try to keep up. It can't keep up right. because the technology is changing so much. Mm. Yet as regulators, as trying to get standards that make sense, we still have to try to find ways right. to regulate stuff that is happening and moving so quickly. Yeah. It's a real challenge.
2: And, and that's where... You were mentioning that it involves engineering and absolutely. all these other fields where you have to liaise with them and and determine what could what sort of technologies could be in the horizon so uh, that you can
0: absolutely. you've hit the nail on the coffin. you know I uh, the way disciplines work and professions work is people traditionally operate in relative silos, mm-hmm. right and and in this area, you know, as a space lawyer, if that's what I, you call me, as a space lawyer, I really have to understand physics of how mm-hmm. orbits work. Mm-hmm. I have to understand the engineering capabilities. Mm-hmm. I have to understand so many things that that I don't truly understand, but at yeah. least I have a feel for it. Yeah. And I mean, exactly as you said, we've got to regulate for the unknown is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Right? Um, whenever I work for governments, governments are very demanding clients, and they say, help us, draft our national law, which I've done for a number of countries, including Australia. Draft our national law, but make it future-proof, <laughs> i.e., <laughs> draft it in a way that'll cover everything that happens in the future. So, so you Im- have to predict whether science is going But the scientists do. Exactly. But that is, I mean, of course you allow for flexibility, yeah. Yeah. but it's impossible. Mm. and. The answer is, even though we'll never get it perfect, because yeah. we'll always be lagging behind that next change, yeah. but the answer exactly as you said is, you need to get the engineers and the scientists and the politicians and the economists mm. and the lawyers and the regulators and many others all in the same room mm. to talk about these things. And frankly, that the way the world works, that doesn't really happen that much. Mm. And so I'm on a bit of a crusade yeah. to make sure that, that we Canada, understand that. Yeah. And so, of course we do. Yeah. Um, it'll make me better at what I do. It'll make the engineers better in what they do if they understand that there are some problems here. And Mm -hmm. there's problems, for example, with space junk. Mm -hmm. And so you design... and, 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 And regulation about space junk. So you design your satellite in a way that mitigates the possibility that it'll break up or something like that, yeah. you know, but there's a whole range of issues. So, yeah. yes, it's multifaceted. It's it's a fantastic area, space, yeah. and there are so many opportunities in so many different areas.
2: Mm. Just, you know, we had Miao though, the transhumanist guy, and he was um, saying that as technology progresses, it's almost exponential, and it becomes harder and harder to predict what's in the future. So, we, it's it's it's... Is it also, so I guess the question I have, what is the lifetime of of predictions when it comes to space law? And do you think that's going to reduce over time where you get to a point where you can't even predict what's going to happen tomorrow because technology is
0: advancing so fast? Incredible question. I wish I had an incredible answer to that. (laughs) uh, So how do I answer that? Think of your mobile phones. Think of uh, five years ago. You know, it would have been unimaginable for you, for you. And you're of that generation, which is very tech savvy, right? Alex, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> every opportunity, every uh, opportunity. Alex would lead me to <laughs> dead, though. <no. laughs> but, but you are of that mindset where you understand, you know, and yet you would never have thought what you can do with your smartphone yeah, yeah, now, sure. right? And, and in five years from now, we'll just be shaking our head, mm-hmm. saying, you know, we, we would never have thought so it's very difficult to predict mm-hmm. the future in terms of the way technology works the so same with space you know that in more recent times there uh, is a there's this development of small satellite technology mm-hmm. now satellites come in all shapes and sizes yeah. uh, they're custom built uh, they're in a whole range of different orbits depending on what they do but it, typically in the past satellites have been quite big right you know mm. from the size of a, a you know a Volkswagen to the size of a school bus mm. but so many variations there is you know there's no standard because they're all built custom built because mm. they cost a lot of money small satellite technology will not replace those but will give us more capability mm. but also give you as individuals and small cor- corporations and startups the ability to access space whereas in the past it would have been impossible mm. because of the cost and a whole range of other mm. issues. And I, I say to people that I liken the small satellite technology to the mobile phones of space. We just don't know, Hamid, right. where it's going to mm. take us. We just don't know. We can of course make predictions but, but who knows yeah. where we go uh, and, and typically in any area we just have to react. Hopefully, we don't have to wait until the disaster happens, yeah. like space tourism and there's a major disaster, right, mm. to then work out. But put yourself in the mind of a, a regulator, right? Mm. I mean, I'm, I don't work for... I'm not a government person, but, I, but I've worked for government, so I sympathise with the people who actually have to write laws, yeah, yeah. right? And I say to you guys, OK, have a great weekend, draft a law about the safety standards for um, space tourism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you go, wow, you know, and you look around and you try to do your research, you know, and you, and, and you do your best. Yeah. And and then that's published. You know, OK, from now on, these are the official minimum standards that anyone who's engaged in space tourism has to, you know, in terms of design, in terms of safety, in terms of, you know, you get all, all the features. yeah. And then someone follows that and goes up and, heaven forbid, but it will happen, there'll be a disaster, it'll blow yeah. up, 10, 20 people will be killed, mm. right? And they will say, well, we just followed the regulatory oh, framework, yeah, right? Yeah, right. And, and it's almost as if we have to start again. Yeah. It's impossibly difficult, yeah. yet, in a sense, we're being asked to do that. Mm. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I'm, you, you can just see yeah. that You really have to have some flexibility. It's really difficult to Mm. do this, but we've got to do it because you can't let, you you can't, you have to encourage responsible behaviour. And if you say, well, go ahead and do this, we'll wait for the first disaster and then we'll know at least it, to that extent what went wrong and we'll start regulating from there, mm. then who knows what sort of behaviour goes on in the yeah. meantime. Plus, we've always got this idea of creating additional space junk as well, which is a major issue. Yeah. So it's really a balance. It's, mm. a, it's a balance between not being too prescriptive and therefore and perhaps getting it wrong mm. to having, making sure that you're encouraging the right behaviour and yet also encouraging, depending on the risk profile of the country, mm entrepreneurship and yeah. creativity and commercial opportunities and all of that but yet still being a good international citizen you know mm. it's a really uh, interesting complex area so there is no time frame that is real if someone says to you hey i can read into the future and mm. this is what we're going to do they might have a good idea but they certainly may be wrong as well
1: yeah yeah, yeah. that's interesting because We've talked about a few, uh, like lots of different things, Um, uh, pollution in space, space junk, um, space tourism you mentioned as well. I I also think like like who owns space, like mining resources and things like that, like who owns that stuff up there. Um, I guess we could talk all day about the types of regulations that currently exist, but probably what's more interesting is... are there any like, gaps, is there anything missing that Big we gaps, really haven't yeah. thought about yet or that we haven't, don't have regulations or law to address? Good question yeah. again.
0: So I mentioned there is this international framework of treaties. They were developed in the 60s and 70s um, and they set some really fundamental principles about uh, how we view space. And the reason we haven't had any more treaties since the late 70s is, again, political. Mm. It's because the legal characterization of space is that it's what we, what we deem to be, although this is an unlegal term, really, a global commons. So we all own space together. Mm. We all own space together. You don't own it. I don't own it. I can't claim it to be mine. Right. No country can pu- put its flag and claim it for, for their, their country. Mm. So, for example, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put the American flag, they weren't claiming the moon. They were just beating their chest yeah. and saying, yeah. we beat you, yeah. Soviet Union, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so this pi- I always liken space to a piece of apple pie. Imagine an apple pie sitting there, and it belongs to all of us. And there am I, and I'm eating away at it. Mm. Oh, this is a great mm-hmm. apple pie and you're saying hey stop eating it belongs to me as much as it belongs to you mm. and if you keep eating there'll be nothing left for me mm. and i say to you hey this belongs to all of us come on down come to come mm. knowing full well you don't have the capability yeah. right um. because it's a have and have not capability right. in space mm. and and so the uh, there's so many polit- political things but in the 70s former colonies became countries, right? there was a process of decolonization. So mm-hmm. for your listeners, in 1945, when the United Nations Charter came into being, there were 51 countries in the world. Today there are, let's say, 200 countries, mm-hmm. there or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of those new countries were former colonies. So if you look at the continent of Africa, for example, 53 countries, every one of them, apart from one, Ethiopia, were former colonies. Mm-hmm. So. The thing about being a colony is when you were a colony, the colonial masters, be they the British or the French or the Belgians or the Germans or whatever, the Americans, any colonial master raped and pillaged the country. They would Mm. take the resources. Mm. And really, you know, some did better than others, Mm. not do a very good job looking after the people, the infrastructure, rape the resources. Mm. And so now go back to space. This apple pie, these new countries have come on board. They exist and you say to them, here's a massive, let's call it resource, which is out of space, which can give rise to so many amazing things. Hmm. Belongs to all of us, but only two or three or five or ten of you are actually just, eating that apple yeah, pie. Yeah. And you think as a small country, it's all happening again. Hmm. We're yeah. being raped and pillaged of our resources. And so that sort of debate, obviously a lot more sophisticated than that, came up in the late 70s when we had a treaty that dealt with exactly the issue you raised, Alex, the mining of resources on space. Mm. And the developing countries, many existed then, uh, this process was a UN process where it was one state, one vote. So the number of developing countries and their bigger, right? And so they managed to put into this treaty ideas about, yes, go ahead and mine, you know, all of those two or three or four countries that can do it. But if you do, you know, you've got to obviously meet the various standards of environmental protection and safety. Mm. But also you need to share benefits with us in some way. Uh, That debate was going on in the moon. And exactly the same time, it was also going on uh, with the deep seabed. There's another whole regime about the deep sea bed yeah. mining the deep sea bed and in both of those regimes the developing countries essentially forced by their weight of numbers i'm not saying this is a bad thing into the respective regimes this idea of sharing benefits so mm. the industrialized countries said well why would we mm. you know why should we right. and so after that this last treaty in space the moon agreement was very not very well subscribed to although australia is a party to it and we haven't had any other treaties mm. we've had a few we've had a number of less binding instruments, guidelines and things about specific things. Mm. But in answer to your question, because that's really contextual to answer the question, which is we can do so many things in space now. Yeah. And these fundamental principles, they're fantastic, right? About how we view space, how we act in space. Uh, we've got to you know, take care of others' interests. We've got to have peaceful purposes. But they don't deal with the specifics of tourism hmm. because it was never envisaged when they had these treaties in the sixties yeah, and seventies. Yeah. We don't have we don't deal with the specifics of uh, suborbital flights. Mm-hmm. We don't have the specifics of a whole range of things that we can actually do. So, are there gaps? The fundamental principles that we have serve us brilliantly. Space actually has worked hmm. from a regulatory viewpoint. Nothing's perfect, but it's actually worked. We haven't had a a war there, and people have developed these amazing technologies, and they continue to do that. So, to a certain degree, it works quite well. Mm. That said, we're doing a whole bunch of things where we don't have specific regimes in place. So, we know the generalities, we know that if you're going to do a space tourism, uh, activity, there are fundamental principles you've got to follow which will guide. Mm. But clearly it would be great if we had more specific rules mm. about that. Mm. And the same debate is going on about the mining of resources now, as I said, that debate is not a new debate, that was yeah. already the late 70s, and it just at the, there was excitement about mining the moon after the analysis of the, the samples by the Apollo missions. Mm. Uh, it just didn't go ahead for a political and a whole range of other reasons. Mm. Now it's it's exciting again, mm. You know, although I'm not convinced that it will happen anytime soon in commercial quantities. Um, there's a whole lot of debate going on about what the rules are. Mm. And clearly my view on this and other things is the fundamental principles serve us well, but we need specifics. But in the end, these things like like the exploitation of resources, despite the fact that one or two countries are now passing national laws to say go ahead to their own people, they're still bound by these international principles. Yeah. And and my own feeling, although I, you know people have accused me of being a bit optimistic on this, is when it really gets to the point, when the industry has done all this incredible work and they have shown that this is real, it's real in the fact that we can really, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure when that will be, mm. We can really start commercially exploiting asteroids and things like Mm. that. Then I think that the major space players, countries, and in fact the community will get together and work out the rules. Because some of these things are too big and too important uh, and too, frankly, political, let alone commercial. To, for one or two countries, let alone one or two companies, to yeah. try to do this stuff this is you know this is very big and and so you know we 're pretty good at adapting you know we've ex- we 're exploiting space already there 's this resource in space called the geostationary orbit i don 't know whether you 've heard of it some yeah. of your listeners would and it 's a particular orbit which is has particular characteristics that make it very, very attractive to put so your satellite there. it's an orbit in. that matches up with the rotation Exactly. Of the Earth, yeah. So by and large, I mean, there are many, many orbits that are used for many, many different things. Mm. This particular orbit, which is 36,000 kilometres away, so it's a long way away, is good for communications because exactly as you say, I mean, it's obviously subject to gravity, so it's not quite as simple as this. Mm-hmm. You've got to do a lot of station keeping. But essentially, if you put your satellite there over Australia it will follow the rotation of the earth and be constant over Australia so that Mm. your uh, Optus or NBN person can come to your, go on your roof, point your satellite dish and it's forever pointing to the satellite. Mm. That's the theory. I mean, obviously it's much, much more complicated, but it's an incredible resource. And again, in the early days, it was just one or two countries that were eating that apple pie. Mm. And ultimately, I mean, lots of lobbying and politics and negotiations. We now have a regime that manages that Hmm. really well through uh, a a UN body called the International Telecommunication Union. So when, you know, the the cliché that that necessity is the mother of invention, Hmm. and I don't mean invention in terms of inventing new activities, but inventing new ways of regulating activity. I'm a believer that we will do it because we have to do it. And in the end, it's in everybody's interests. And, and that's also because space is also, the, lots of people are talking about space as a war fighting domain and, you know, it's extraordinarily irresponsible yeah. rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, sure, it's used for military purposes all the time. We understand that. But, but, but it's used for many other things as yeah. well. But in the end, uh, an interesting comparison for your listeners I always compare space to climate change. So, if you think about climate change, major challenge for the world, right? Right. Who are the countries that are going to suffer the most, at least in the beginning of climate change? The developing countries. The small ones. The small developing countries.
1: The ones contributing probably the least to it. Exactly.
0: Exactly. In space, the ones that are going to suffer the most at the beginning, if... Irresponsible behaviour, people start blowing up satellites or there's too much junk or whatever, yep. are the big, large countries because they're the players in space. Mm. They're the ones that are so dependent on space. The United States, if, if you um, demobilised a couple of strategic Uh, GPS satellites, their entire sewage system would collapse. Mm. Their entire railroad Mm. railroad network would collapse. Their entire traffic network would collapse, let alone all sorts of other things. So the major countries are so heavily dependent on space that if things go completely belly up in space, they're the ones that will suffer the most in the beginning. Everybody suffers, of course, Mm, because, you know... But And so for me, that's a major difference. And for me, that's a major... Point where, despite all the rhetoric, despite the the you know the fierce competition, the major countries have to realise, mm. and no doubt some people do, some people need to be told that in the end, if you if you are irresponsible, it's self-defeating. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that's what makes you an optimist. I like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we've we've kind of hit thirty minutes. Um,
1: that's well, been a fascinating discussion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. thank you so thank much you. for, I can for only being. Hope I get the MBN on soon, though. I'm still
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, it, do you take on research students? So I you... do. I'm. I'm very happy. I, I'm looking. Uh, we we're gonna. We have great space capability at this university. I mean, we have law, of course, law mm-hmm. and policy, which is me. But we have neuromorphic medicine and yeah. you know really amazing stuff. We've got radio astronomy. Yeah. We've mm-hmm. got a really strong uh, startup community support because many of these small satellite companies are startup companies. Mm -hmm. Um, We're gonna build, I think, at this university, even more capability and and I hope to be an integral part of it. I'm constantly looking for it. Um, Of course, we've got great engineering faculty. Aerospace engineering is something Mm. that I hope we're gonna bring in here as well. So yes, um, so we, we would like more students. That's awesome. There you go.
2: Uh, if you're interested in working with Professor Stephen Freeland, definitely hit him up. And you can find his uh, details on Google. If you can't, you
0: probably shouldn't be a research student. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you uh, <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, did you like this episode? If so,
2: why don't you head over to iTunes and rate and review us. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel. What will help us the most is if you share this episode with a friend and spread the good news.